was in college, I had a professor who was in his 50s, and he had been teaching at that same university for about 30 years, uh, which meant that he began teaching at the college level when he himself uh, was just a young man. Now, by the time that I got there, this professor didn't have very much hair left. Um, he had actually been teaching college students for 30 years, so you, can, you know why the hair just decided to leave. Um, and he always wore the same style of shirt. It, it didn't matter what day of the week it was. It didn't matter what time of year it was. He always wore the exact same style of shirt. It wasn't a matter of what was he wearing. It was only a matter of what color is it or what pattern does it have on it. And it was a polyester collared uh, type shirt uh, that, w- that had the bands around the arms, you know, which isn't so bad. You kind of like show off your guns and stuff, like just fits real tight around there. And you're like, yeah, um, but it had the bands around the arms. But this is what killed me. It had a band around the waist, right? Remember those shirts that like, it was like form fitting around your waist and then kind of poofy everywhere else. It was like, a, it was like the golf shirt of the 60s. Um, and this professor had been wearing them for years and years and years and years. Uh, had a huge collection of them, uh, but we, we loved him. Uh, he was a religion professor, so uh, as he was presenting material, he was probably teaching us about God's love. And as, you, as he was teaching us about God's love, he would teach us about these three Greek words that are translated into the one English word, love. And if you're going to understand scripture and what scripture really has to say about love, you need to understand the Greek, the Greek agape, phileo, and eros. Uh, Or he might be teaching us about God's presence. And so uh, he would be giving us material about uh, the, the tabernacle and all of its rooms and the, and the, uh, the inner court and the outer court and the, the holy place and the most holy place. And, or, or in teaching about God's presence, he, he might be teaching us about the tearing of the curtain uh, of the temple at the death of Christ. Or, or then he would lead us into how all of these things uh, culminate in Scripture to now you are the tabernacle of God, that, that God's presence dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, but just about every class period, uh, after presenting this material, uh, he, would, he would move out from behind his desk and he would sit on it uh, with one leg on the ground and one leg up. He would kind of perch himself on the edge of the desk. And any time he took on the perch, that's when you knew we were shifting from the presentation of material to speaking from the heart. Uh, Anytime he moved out from behind the desk, he was going to be talking to us from the heart about why the material that he had just taught us about mattered. And so while he was sitting on the edge of the desk, he would raise his hand in the air with his finger pointing up, and he would say things like, you'll never fully understand the beauty of God's presence until you struggle. Or, or he would say, knowing God's love in the midst of pain and injustice is what matures us. Now, we were, um, we were a bunch of college students who, for the most part, had lived blessed and easy lives in the suburbs of America, so we, of course, had no idea what he was talking about, Right? Uh, But what we did know is that when Dr. Fine came out from behind the desk, he wasn't just sharing material, he was sharing his heart. 
What I want us to realize about Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8 and and all the way through verse 20, is that this is where Paul moves from behind the desk and begins to share from his heart to the Galatians. In fact, if you look at your Bibles, many of your Bibles uh, will have a heading over uh, verse 8, and it will probably say something like this, Paul's concern for the Galatians. Paul's concern for the Galatians. This passage is all about Paul showing us his pastoral heart for the people of Galatia. He's been, he's been, he spent now three chapters. Now, of course, he didn't see them as three chapters, uh, but we know them as these three chapters. But he spent a, a good amount of time presenting material to them, and now he moves out from behind the desk, and he begins to share his heart, and he begins to share his concern. And I think that when we, when we think about the Apostle Paul and this real person who existed in real history, uh, we need to realize that Paul, for all of his brilliance, has a very pastoral heart. That at the end of the day, these are people that he loves, which is precisely why, of course, he's writing the letter. He wants to, he wants to teach them something, and he's teaching them out of love from his heart. In other words, I want us to understand this. Paul was not just a a talking brain. (laughs) He wasn't just a a brain who spewed out theology. He's a warm-blooded human being who loved and cared for the Christians in Galatia. And and in this uh, this passage, verses 8 through 20, Paul essentially has three things that he wants to share from the heart with the Galatians. Uh, his message from the heart basically has three parts. He, he begins by saying to them, don't return to slavery. Don't return to slavery. Now, you remember that in the very first part of chapter 4, he's just finished his crescendo that led us to the point you were once living in slavery, but now you've been adopted and are an heir with Christ. And so all the material up to that point has been leading us to that crescendo. And so he, so he says, you have been adopted and you are an heir with Christ. And then he gets from behind the desk. And so he says, so then don't go on living in slavery anymore. You, you see, he's just shared all this material again about how, Christ, how through Christ and the cross and the resurrection has set them free from what he calls the elemental spiritual forces of the world, right? In other words, he's saying them, to them that by faith they have been freed from the grip of sin and they are now heirs with Christ. They have moved from slavery to adoption and their lives have gone from being defined and governed by that which has mastery over them, right? What does it mean to be a slave? It means to have your life defined and governed by the very thing that has mastery over you. And then he says, but you are no longer a slave. You've been moved and you've been adopted, which means now under adoption, your life is defined and governed not by the thing that has mastery over you, but by a father who loves you. And so he's talking to them about the very thing that defines and governs their lives. And Paul's encouragement now is don't return to slavery. Don't live. Uh, Now, since you have been set free through Christ, You don't need to live as though you are enslaved. So you are righteous, you are free, you are faithful, and you are blessed because of Christ. 
and all that is true of you and who you are because of Christ. So don't go on living like a slave, but rather go on living as one who is free in Christ. That's his first encouragement. And, and can I just stop here and say this? I am now 10 years into ministry, and I am utterly convinced that Christian maturity is defined by how well we are able to live into what is already true of us in Christ. That Christian maturity is not at all focused on what the, the typical metrics that we tend to, uh, tend to attach to maturity. A lot of times when we think about, oh, this person is a mature Christian, we think about simply the length of time that they've been a Christian. And I want to say to you, that doesn't have anything to do with Christian maturity. A lot of times we, we, we say, this person is a, a mature Christian, and we're talking about how much they pray, or how much they read the Bible, or, or how much they participate in the fast and, and other spiritual disciplines. And I think that that's all part of, of Christian maturity, but it's for the purpose of allowing us to live into our identity in Christ. And so I want to say that Christian maturity is not so much defined by the length of time that has passed or how much you read the scripture or how much you pray, but rather I want to say that Christian maturity, the defining mark of of Christian maturity is how well we live into what is already true of us in Christ. That the moment you accept Jesus Christ, by faith, you are fully righteous. You are called blessed, faithful, a child of God, an heir of Christ. All that is true of you, that will ever be true of you, is true of you in that moment. What maturity is, is living more and more into that identity that we have in Christ. Are you with me? I really think that that's what Christian maturity is. And and guess what? It comes by lots of time in the Word, lots of time in prayer, practicing the spiritual disciplines. But all of those things are not so much an end in themselves as much as they're leading us into living our identity in Christ, living out what is already true of us in Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what Paul is saying. He is saying to the Galatians, you are no longer slaves. So go on living like you're free, right? It's like, this is true of you, so now let's get on with living that way. That's precisely what Paul says, and he's saying it while he's perched on the edge of a desk. Now, the second thing that he says to them is, become like me. Well, I always knew that the Apostle Paul was a little bit conceited. You can't be that famous and not be selfish, right? Uh, Well, what does he mean when he says, I want you to become like me? Uh, Paul's appeal, when he says, become like me, Paul is appealing to the Galatians on the basis of friendship. Again, he's moving out from behind the desk in order to share his heart. And his heart is to remind them of the relationship that they already have. In other words, if they were ever tempted to see him only as a talking brain, in this moment he's trying to get get them to see him as he sees them, which is as a friend. And so he's appealing to their friendship. And he says this, become like me. 
as I have become like you. Now, what does he mean? Well, essentially what he is saying is he gave up law observance in order to minister to the Gentiles. Now, that may not, that, that, I mean, that's one sentence, and that may not sound like very much. But Paul grew up in a very Jewish culture, a Pharisee, in fact. And a Pharisee is one who would have memorized uh, the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Right? So Paul would have had in his head at any point memorized the first five books of, what we, the, of, of our Bible. He had that memorized. He was an expert in the law. He was Jewish through and through. And if you were a Jewish person, remember way back when, when we started Galatians, we talked about how the Jewish identity was centered on law. And what the whole point that Paul is trying to make is that the Christian identity is centered on Christ and faith. But, so, but as a Jewish person, your entire identity is centered on the law. And what Paul is saying is that in order to minister to you, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, I have given up law observance as a Pharisee so that I can minister to you. And so become like me as I've become like you. I've given up law observance in order to minister to you as Gentiles. So don't, as Gentiles, then pick up law observance just because of the message of the agitators that have come in and say, you have to do so in order to be Christian. Does that make sense? The agitators are there. That's what Paul calls them, the agitators. They're bringing in a message to Galatia that says in order to be a true Christian, in order to inherit the promises of God, you have to adopt Jewish customs and practices, law observance, circumcision, all of these things. Paul says, I gave those things up so that I can bring Christ to you. Now that I've brought Christ to you, don't pick those things up in order to feel like you, just because that's what these agitators are saying, and just so you think, in other words, you have to be a Christian to do that. So then he goes on, and he further appeals to their friendship. He says, when I first came to you, I was, I was sick. It was sickness that brought my message to you. And you, you could have rejected me. You nearly rejected me, but instead you treated me like a brother. He said, in fact, you treated me like Christ himself. In fact, you would even pluck out one of your eyes for me. Oh, that's all just very nice, isn't it? When was the last time you said to somebody, you know what, I would pluck my eyes out for you. That's kind of like an ancient way of saying, I've got your back, right? So, so let's, like, let's understand what's going on here. He's not, Paul is not saying, like, literally this is happening. Uh, it's just a, it's an ancient expression of, of a way of saying, you are with us, you know? Uh, and so what happens, and let's, let's get a little context around there. When Paul first came to them, he was, in fact, very sick. When Paul was first bringing the message of Christ to the region of Galatia, he was extremely sick. And there was a temptation of the Galatians uh, to reject Paul and his gospel message because of his physical state, his physical condition. Uh, but what he essentially says is that even though you could have done that, even though you may have been tempted to reject me and my message of Jesus Christ because of the physical condition that I was in, you didn't. Instead, you, you welcomed me. So essentially what he is saying is, are you going to give up the relationship that we have built up to this point? just because some other people have come in and are sharing now a different message. And in this part especially, you get a real sense that this is where Paul is just sharing his heart. He's not presenting any theology to them. He's just saying, he's appealing to them on the basis of their friendship. And he's saying, look, we've built up this friendship. So would you, are you really willing to give all of that away? just because these other folks have come in with an alternative gospel. 
The, the third thing that, that Paul uh, says to them is, he says this, he says, don't let the agitators divide us. Don't let the agitators divide us. The agitators were trying to create uh, an outer circle of Gentile believers and the inner circle of Jewish believers. So they were trying to create tiers, hierarchies, separation, walls, uh, lines. They were trying to do all of these distinctions between us and them. And so there was an outer circle. Yeah, you could be in the club, but you're not really in the club. Like you're in the club, but you're not invited to the parties, if you know what I mean. So you're like, you're on the outer circle. You're the Gentile believers. And then there's the inner circle, the Jewish believers. And if Gentiles wanted to be in the inner circle, they had to become Jewish through circumcision, circumcision and law observance. But Paul essentially says, as he's sharing his heart with them, he says this, don't let them alienate us from one another because there is no inner circle and outer circle in Christ. In Christ, there's just a circle. There's just one. Or do you believe? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? That's it. There's no inner, there's no outer, there's no middle. It's just one group of believers that God is building. It's a brand new community, and it's called the church. This is Paul's essential message to them. It's his message from the heart. Three things. Don't let the agitators divide us. Become like me. In other words, don't pick up law observance, because I gave that very thing up in order to bring Christ to you. And don't return to a life of slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world because you are free in Christ. And that's pretty good. I mean, that, that's, that's like a pretty good perched on the edge of the desk message. Um, but you and I know that communication is, the, the posture and tone of our communication is often more important than the message. And so what I want to focus on this morning is not so much the tenets of these three things that Paul shares. But I want us to capture the heart of this, this, this imagery of Paul perching on the edge of the desk and just sharing his heart with these people whom he loves. All three of these things are an appeal, first of all, to their relationship. But they are also embedded with the desire that Christ be formed in this community. You see, Paul, Paul has gone from sharing a whole bunch of material, then he's moved from behind the desk and shared his heart. And the reason that any professor would do this, that any teacher would do this, that any pastor would do this, is because he knows it's not just about the material, but it's that the material find root in the hearts of the people that he's speaking to. The only reason that Dr. Fine ever moved from the whiteboard in front of a desk to in, behind a desk to the front of the desk is because he wanted to make sure that we got it. Not that just that we got it, but that we got it. He was trying to teach to privileged, blessed, upper middle class American kids from the suburbs that you will never know the presence of God until you have struggled. And it is the love of God in the midst of pain that matures us. 
And the only reason that Paul will stop his theological content and move to this is because he wants to make sure that the Galatians get it. His whole motivation is found in verse 19. I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's his whole heart. Paul's whole heart is he a recognition that everything he says about the gospel makes no difference outside of relationship with the community. Does that make sense? Let me say it to you this way. Uh, if you're part of a church and you're just uh, kind of quasi-connected, um, you don't really know folks, you kind of attend, you pop in, you pop out, the messages might be pretty good. Uh, they might find some sort of application to your life. You could take it home and, 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 and wrestle with it a little bit. But I have found over and over and over again that if the opposite is true, if, you're, if you are plugged into the community, if you know people, if you love people, if you are, are, are busy loving folks and folks are busy loving you, you can come and, and, and the music has a new ring and a new hum to it. And it turns out that the pastor who's just mediocre, if you're connected to the community, all of a sudden is pretty great, Right? And it's because, it's because the gospel finds more formation in us in community and in relationship than outside of relationship. And Paul recognizes this. And so he's sharing a whole bunch of material. But then he moves out from behind the desk and he appeals to his relationship with this community and he says, my whole goal is that Christ will be formed in you. That's his heart, and that's his whole goal. In other words, in Paul's pastoral heart and his appeal to the community and his desire to see Christ formed in them points us to this important truth. True understanding and application of the gospel only comes in community. Let me say that again. True understanding and application of the gospel only comes in community. You could also say it only comes in relationship with other people. You will never fully understand the gospel. You will never fully apply the gospel until you are working it out in relationship with other people. And this, I think, is, is the heart of Paul's message from the heart. That if we were to go sort of, you could kind of look at the three points and we could make a three-point sermon and that would all be very great. But if you kind of go one layer behind the three things that he's actually sharing, this is what you get to. Paul's emphasis on the community and his desire to see Christ formed in them. And so Paul appeals to his relationship with the Galatians because outside of relationship, the gospel is just a whole, bunch, a whole set of words and facts. And I'm not trying to... Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me today. What I'm actually trying to do is place the gospel in context. And I think, by and large, we have done exactly the opposite. We have assumed that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
can, can exist outside of a context of relationship. And we've elevated sort of this, this, this uh, ethereal thing called the gospel so much that when I say that, that without the context of relationship, the gospel is actually just words and facts, we kind of go, oh, how can you speak of the gospel that way? But I, I'm utterly convinced it's true. Outside of relationship, the gospel just becomes a set of words and facts because the point of the gospel is not so much that we'll have proper facts in our head. The whole point of the gospel is that we'll be shaped as the people of God. And I think modern, scientific, industrial, modernized American evangelical Christianity needs to hear that. Because that's precisely what we've done. We've, we've made the gospel all about facts rather than formation. And we've said, oh, do you believe this fact? Do you believe this fact? And you believe this fact? Okay, you're going to heaven when you die. Great. And I would want to say to you, the whole purpose of the gospel is not that you have properly fact, proper facts in your head, but that you are properly formed as the people of God. What is God doing in the world? He's forming, he's raising up a people as he's in the business of making all things new. He's looking for a community to partner with him in making all things new. That community is called the church. And if we're going to faithfully do the task that God has called us, partnership in making all things new, we have to be properly formed. And so the gospel is not about facts, it's about formation. And this should cause us really to think about two things. Here's your two-point sermon, right? Congratulations, that was the intro. (laughs) So this should cause us to think about two things. Number one is we really need to think about our practice of faith. Our practice of faith. We have a real temptation to over-individualize our faith and think that it's just between me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. The reality, however, is the gospel cannot be fully formed in you on your own. The gospel cannot be fully formed in you on your own. If all you have, now, you need to have me and Jesus. That's important. But if all you have is me and Jesus, then your private faith can only take you so far. You can only grow. There is a a ceiling to your spiritual growth outside of a community. Inside of a community, There is no limit to what God can do in you and through you. The community is absolutely essential. Now, the reason is because we need the wisdom, we need the support, and we need the experience of the community. The community can provide you with the assurance that you are not alone or isolated in your struggle. The community can provide perspective that you can't see, and the community can be the tangible presence of God in your life when you need support. See, a lot of people enter into a time that's difficult and the circumstances are hard and they're entering into a challenge and and they say, God, I need to know your grace. I need to know your presence. I need to know that you are present in the midst of my struggle. And how does God do that? More often than not, he does it through other people. It is far less common that God will sort of mystically make his presence known in your life. I'm not saying that's outside of what God can do, and he often does it, and there's evidence that he does that in Scripture. But more often than not, 
when we are in a time when we need support and we need to know that God is with us. And remember when we said in our last series called The Cross that God suffers with us, not just for us? So many times the, the way in which we know that is real is we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are there suffering with us. Who are there celebrating with us. Who are there mourning with us, weeping with us. And so a lot of times when we say, man, I need the support of the presence and the grace of God, the way in which God chooses to provide that support, that grace and that presence is through other people. And so the community becomes absolutely essential. I want to read, I'm reading this phenomenal book, Water to Wine, um, by Brian Zond. And I want to read uh, a lengthy portion to you. But I think it so uh, capsulizes this point. Um, so stick with me as I read from this book. And, and we'll, just have, we'll just have story time. Can we have a little bit of story time? That would be awesome. Uh, there, there aren't any pictures, so I can't really show you pictures, but, uh, but we'll, we'll do this. By the way, Water to Wine is a, um, it's, it's, it's not an autobiography, but is deeply autobiographical. Uh, he's essentially telling some of his story, some of the shifts that he's gone through uh, as a pastor over the course of, of decades of ministry. And he says this, as an evangelical Protestant, I had inherited a highly individualistic approach to salvation. I, along with nearly everyone I knew, viewed salvation as primarily a private transaction between God and the solitary individual. Jesus was handing out tickets to a gated community in heaven where everyone would have their own private mansion. The church's role was reduced to that of a superfluous common interest club. The church was seen as peripheral, uh, not integral to salvation. It's like a cyclist who joins a cycling club to enhance the individual experience of cycling. But if the cyclist decides that she doesn't like her fellow club members or doesn't want to go on the Sunday morning group rides or no longer wants to pay her dues, then she can leave the club without giving up cycling. She can ride her bicycle all by herself. It was her individual choice to cycle that made her a cyclist. Belonging to a cycling community was optional, not essential to being a cyclist. And this was basically how I understood salvation riding your salvation bicycle all by yourself. But it turns out this is a terribly mistaken way of thinking about salvation. What if salvation is better understood as a kind of belonging? It's true that salvation is personal, but it is not individual. Salvation is communal by design. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus only uses the word salvation on two occasions, in Luke chapter 19, verse 9, and John chapter 4, verse 22. What Jesus talks about almost exclusively is the kingdom of God. Paul, on the other hand, rarely mentions uh, the kingdom of God, but speaks incessantly about salvation. Here's the point. What Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God Paul tends to call salvation, but they are talking about the same thing. To belong, and this is what I want you to hear, to belong to the redeemed community that lives under the reign and rule of Christ, that is the kingdom of God, is to enter into the Lord's salvation. I want to read that sentence again. 
to belong to the redeemed community that lives under the reign and rule of Christ, that is the kingdom of God, is to enter into the Lord's salvation. So salvation is a kind of belonging. An emphasis on the word community helped me understand that if, Je- if the Jesus we follow doesn't lead us into the community of other followers, we are following a mostly made-up Jesus, a manufactured Jesus designed to accommodate the modern culture of me. Hard-hitting words, no doubt. But I want us to, what I want us to hear and what I want us to get and to understand is that as Paul speaks to the Galatians about these three things, become like me and don't let the agitators separate us and don't live in slavery, what he's pointing them to and what he's appealing to is not only his relationship with them, but their relationship with one another. They are going to need one another if they're going to do that. And so the whole thing is an appeal to the relationship for Christ to be formed in them. The salvation cannot be worked out outside of the community. And so this ought to deeply affect the way in which we practice our faith. The other thing I want to say to you is that it also deeply ought to shape the way in which we share our faith. So you see, Paul has an awareness that his message is as only as good as his relationship with the Galatians. That outside of relationships, Paul really does just become a talking brain. He's just up there who's, who's, you know, he's up there, he's a guy who's very smart and he does all of this kind of good stuff and he seems to be doing good work in the world. But if the Galatians don't have a relationship with him, then he knows that that is going to limit the formation of Christ in them and their community. And so Paul, even in his teaching, even in his evangelizing to them, understands that he has to be in relationship. And I think that we need to understand that sharing our faith happens best in relationship every single time. Sharing our faith with others happens best in relationship every single time. Now, I don't imagine that many of you are tempted to grab a bullhorn, head to a busy part of town, and proclaim the gospel. So I don't imagine that many of you are tempted to share uh, the gospel outside of, with, with masses outside of relationship. But I do imagine it's a temptation for many of us, including me, to live with our doors shut to those who aren't like us. So while we may not be tempted... See, we could say this one truth. The gospel must be shared in relationship. And we can say that to say, okay, don't grab a bullhorn and share the gospel on a busy corner. But we can, that doesn't challenge many of us. And I don't imagine that many of us are tempted to do that. But what we are tempted to do is, is get in our Subarus, because I know that all of you got them, right? There's like a Subaru hatch in the, in the parking lot. Um, so what we are tempted to do is get into your Subaru, drive to your little neighborhood, open the garage door, drive into your garage, close the garage door, get in your house, shut the blinds, lock the front door, and live your private life. To which I would say to you, the gospel cannot be shared outside of relationship. And Paul knows this, and he wants to encourage us to begin adopting and living a way of life in that we are also sharing the gospel to the people in which we are in relationship with. 
And so here's what I believe God is challenging us to do today. I believe that today, God in some way, form or fashion, is calling you into relationship. Now, on a very basic level, God may be doing that, calling you into relationship with himself. Maybe you're here today, you're exploring faith, you're not sure about faith, just a friend invited you and you decided you didn't have anything else to do on Sunday morning. And so maybe the relationship that God is calling you into this morning is a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ where you would enter into relationship with God himself. But God may also be calling you into relationship with fellow believers. Maybe you have, been, maybe you have isolated yourself and he is calling you to risk relationship with others. Can we just be honest for a moment and say that real, actual, authentic relationship is in fact a risk? Some of you are like, life group? No way. There is no way you are getting me to walk through the doors of some people I don't know. Absolutely not. It's a risk. But God may be calling you and inviting you to take that risk and then slowly develop authentic relationships with those who can love and support you and you can love and support them. The mistake that we make, though, is that we try to rush this process. And we're like, yeah, I went to a life group twice. Didn't really work. And listen, it doesn't have to be a life group. In fact, I don't even care if it's a life group or not. All that I care and my heart's deepest desire is that each and every one of you would have authentic relationship with fellow believers. And so he may be calling you to risk by going through the slowly developed process of authentic relationship with other people. And other believers, because it's absolutely essential to our formation and our growth in Christ. But he also may be calling you into relationship with someone who doesn't know the hope of Christ. And listen, I promise you that God is not calling you into the relation into relationship with someone who does not know the hope of Jesus Christ so that you can save them. I promise you that is not the case. If if you think that you have an evangelism project, that is not the Holy Spirit. But God may be calling you into relationship with those who don't yet know the hope of Christ for the purpose of friendship or maybe for the joy of loving another human being, but not so that you can save them. What happens is if we enter into relationship with people just so we can save them, let's say, we, let's say that this is awful language. Let's say that we get them saved. Then what? Then we no longer have interest in the relationship, right? project's over. You check it off your list. You move on. And so that's not the kind of relationship I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is, is drawing you and inviting you into relationship with those who do not yet know the hope of Jesus Christ. My hope for us is that we as a community would dare to be a community where Christ is formed in us as we walk this journey together. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.